Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. Up until a year ago, the Middle East seems to be Russia's most pressing business. Ukraine was always at the background, but between 2014 and 2022, Syria seemed to occupy center stage with Russian bases, units and operations bolstering the Assad regime while carrying out Moscow's own missions. Now that Syria and perhaps the entire Mideast have been relegated to a secondary position, what are the implications for Russia's relations with regional powers such as Israel, Iran and Turkey? How does the emergence of a Russian-Chinese axis actively competing with an American-led one impact the region? To ponder these questions, we're joined from elsewhere in Jerusalem by Professor Zev Khanin, who is an expert on Russian and Middle Eastern studies at Barilan and Ariel Universities. Thank you for joining us, sir. Thank you. Oh, great to be with you. Also joining us from Johannesburg in South Africa is Ms. Paula Sleer, who is the Middle East Bureau Chief of Russia Today and Head of Channel RT Africa. Thank you for joining us as well, ma'am. Thank you for having me. And with me in the studio, as always, our TV7 editor-at-large and host of Watchmen Talk, Powers in Play, and so much more, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us a broader understanding. Of course, Russia is no stranger to this region. Uh, but what changed since uh, this uh, past year of hostilities between Russia and Ukraine? So interests are uh, basically permanent. Uh, they uh, very slowly change over time. But priorities uh, do change, and they derive from uh, what uh, the most pressing business uh, dictates. And uh, while Russia is perhaps the number three, if that um, power in the world, except for its nuclear uh, missiles and warheads, but for all the rest, it is the global power which competes with the United States and with China. Nevertheless, the Middle East has been the closest um, continent or part of continent closest to it, except for Europe and mostly Ukraine, which it has always considered an essential part of its empire. So whatever can be done to help her win the war in Ukraine, which may not be winnable, but at least it wants to pour all of its resources into it, it will do. If Iran is right now the partner of choice, so be it. Once the war ends, it will probably revert to uh, the way uh, the Russians always looked at the Iranians, the Turks, the Israelis, and the others. Indeed. Well, Ms. Lear, I'd like to refer to you first. Uh, to what degree do you see that shift? You've been covering, obviously, Russia uh, for quite some time and catering to Russia as well for quite some time. Uh, what has altered to, uh, in this region? Well, I think first and foremost, this war was always going to happen. The last Russia-Ukraine war back in 2014, for various reasons, set the groundwork for what we see now. Russia finds itself having to look for new friends. We heard from the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, a couple of months ago, and, and his view really does represent not just what the Russian government believes, but what the Russian people believe. And that is that Russia has never been embraced by Western powers. And as such, Russia is looking towards the Middle East. It is looking towards the East and it's looking towards Africa. 
in terms of finding its new friends. What is going to change, however, is countries in the Middle East like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates that were traditionally close allies of the United States. We do see a growing feeling, not only in those countries, but I would argue in a lot of countries in the region, that they don't want the United States to dictate to them what their foreign policy is. So for example, if we take Saudi Arabia, which is arguably the most powerful country in the region, you have a situation there where they're saying that they're not going to be dictated by the United States and that Russia can buy oil from them and engage in trade with them, not in dollars. So already you have those sanctions that were imposed on Russia being sidetracked by various countries, whether it be in the Middle East or in, in other parts of the world. So you have an alignment here of Russia looking for new friends, and you also have countries in the Middle East being put with their backs against the wall, if you like, in terms of mostly having to choose, are they siding with Russia or are they siding with the Ukraine? And here you have many countries kind of not liking the fact that they're being forced to make a decision, hedging their bets, not necessarily coming out overly critical of Russia. And here, for example, we can use Israel, Israel fully understanding that it needs it's Russia, while at the same time might be supportive of the Ukrainians and the humanitarian situation there. So I think we're not likely to see a major change in the region. And I think for Russia's perspective, it, it has been building these relations for quite some time and is anticipatory of how different countries are responding. I don't think Russia is necessarily over surprised in terms of how countries in the Middle East are, are responding to it. Did Professor Hanin your take of this? Well, uh, the current situation uh, concerning the foreign policy on Russia in general and its strategy in the Middle East reminds me of the late Soviet times. That was probably the last period, which returns now, uh, that the Soviet Union at that time uh, had the so-called national doctrine, which was their, um, we will define it, uh, a Marxist communism idea all over the world with the uh, Soviet Union on the top of it. So the whole concept of the foreign policy was uh, extension of so-called revolutionary movement. Uh, and uh, that is why stimulating the three uh, major streams within this uh, uh, world revolutionary movement. Uh, the first, of course, the uh, socialist or communist countries camp uh, headed by the Soviet Union. The second, as we remember, uh, there was so-called uh, a proletarian movement, struggle of the world proletariat, uh, and uh, that means underprivileged classes, uh, mostly in the uh, capitalist countries, uh, as they were defined, the Western liberal countries, uh, against uh, the bourgeoisie, imperialism, uh, and so on and so forth. And the third stream, uh, actually non-alignment movement, that means countries of the third world, all the three streams, uh, should, according to the uh, Soviet ideology, had to bring this world revolution. Today, we have more or less the same. We have the new doctrine, which they didn't have, Russia didn't have uh, in, the, in the course of the last 30 years uh, after the destruction the, um, uh, of the Soviet Union. They didn't have this national doctrine. Now they have it. They have so-called Russian world, meaning not ethnic Russian, but Russia as a uh, like, uh, descendant, as a heritage of this uh, three concept of the uh, de uh, democratic movement of the Russian empire and of the Soviet Union. And these three major streams are actually uh, figured out like uh, uh, Russia and its closest allies. Uh, here in the Middle East, we are talking about uh, uh, Iran, Syria, and the countries like that. Uh, and Russia is uh, trying to attend 
to this camp uh, more and more countries, uh, maybe in the Arab world, a little bit in the African world, uh, whenever, um, uh, wherever, uh, where the leaders of these countries are ready to declare themselves, to pose themselves, and to maybe to be in some way uh, the strategic partners of Russia. The second is actually an, uh, an attempt to address uh, to different uh, uh, so-called, as they defined, on the privileged classes uh, in the Western world and uh, to recruit them uh, again to fight with the Western imperialism. And the third, actually, this again, uh, this non-alignment movement, and uh, we can uh, observe uh, from uh, visits of Russian foreign minister um, uh, in the countries where they visit, visited in the recent weeks, and there is some bonds that it lies exactly uh, the track uh, which so, uh, Soviet Union foreign ministers and Soviet Union delegations uh, conducted from time to time uh, in 1970s and 1980s. Uh, as far as the Middle East is concerned, that is pretty, pretty um, uh, clear uh, if you will take this uh, understanding uh, into account uh, that their task is to um, more and more uh, strengthen strategic peer partnership with these countries like Iran. Uh, and distance themselves from uh, uh, other potential uh, allies like Israel. Israel is more uh, expected to be a, a part of the second stream. That means uh, uh, which is balancing uh, between the West uh, and Russia and uh, other subjects, but uh, not a friend, but not a foe at the moment. And uh, again, uh, uh, to do everything in their power in order to put uh, Arab world and Southern Caucasus world uh, uh, segment uh, on their side uh, uh, without much success at the moment, I might say. Indeed. Well, Mr. Oren, it seems like uh, Russia has been ongoingly during the 30 years in an identity crisis of sorts, uh, where it ultimately found itself uh, uh, during a conflict with Ukraine, trying to reassert its dominance uh, in multiple levels. Uh, but when we really look, practically speaking, uh, we see that uh, the uh, capacity of Russia to truly dominate uh, as a significant factor in the Middle East has been altered. We uh, previously saw, of course, uh, the meeting between King uh, Abdullah going to Moscow and meeting with Putin, declaring him as the most important factor uh, in the Middle East and other Western partners doing so. Of course, you have OPEC+. Plus that in the past was a lot more adherent, but in a defiant uh, tone, of course, to the Biden administration, not necessarily to the West and the United States, uh, seeking to jab and stab where it can uh, from time to time. Uh, but right now, when we're looking at uh, truly uh, even taking Syria as a good example, uh, many of the forces that were deployed there were redeployed elsewhere. To what degree is those uh, activities, are those activities, uh, is the capacity of Russia to truly influence in the various spheres still present? So um, the Soviet Union uh, has always been very cautious in uh, its uh, intervention um, away from its uh, borders. Uh, of course, uh, we have seen uh, in the 1980s Afghanistan, and even earlier we saw the deployment of uh, Soviet uh, fighter pilots and um, surface-to-air missile crews to Egypt. But uh, this was the exception and uh, the uh, whole might 
um, of the Soviet Union was not behind it. Uh, it's different now with Ukraine, which of course borders Russia and uh, is considered part of Russia by, uh, by Putin, who says that uh, Ukraine uh, does not deserve to be uh, sovereign and uh, independent. So in that sense, there was never real leverage military-wise uh, by Russia in the Middle East. It could have supplied, um, it could have helped, but mostly it was political or diplomatic assistance because it is still a permanent member of the UN Security Council. It has veto power. And sometimes, uh, curiously, it can cooperate with the United States against another country, such as in a um, resolution against Israel on settlements, or with the, with the United States on the joint comprehensive plan of action vis-a-vis uh, -vis Iran. So one, one uh, could not uh, uh, look down on Russia as being powerless, but it has to, do, to uh, deploy its power very economically. Indeed. Uh, well, uh, Ms. Lear, when we uh, look at this challenge of being economically impaired to a certain degree because of the vast resources that go into the war in Ukraine, uh, to what degree is it truly capable of being beyond uh, a political influence rather than an actual practical influence in the field? I think it's a valid point. I think one of the challenges facing Russia now, for example, is its military uh, might. You've, of course, heard of the Wagner private military army, and that the Wagner forces have been working with the Russian soldiers in countries like Libya, for example. And one of the ideas in Libya was not only that by assisting in the civil war back in 2020, 2021, the idea was that you would have Russia having an influence from there from which it could expand into the Sahel region in Africa. And at the same time, Russia would have access to the various oil fields. It would also be able to overlook gas exploration projects in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, I'm sitting here in Africa, and one of the big stories in Africa is the influence of Wagner coming into the Sahel region. And we know that Wagner is very influential in the Central African Republic, in Mali, in Mauritania. So you have the whole Sahel region here in Africa, as well as the Middle East, being militarily influenced by the Russians. Now, the same thing has happened in Syria. I mean, you mentioned Syria, but arguably there is still a very, very strong Russian influence in Syria to the extent that they are able to influence NATO's southern flank. They're able to call the shots in terms of Israeli operations across the border. They're able to hold on to oil production in Syria. One of the big criticisms or one of the concerns, however, is that Russia has been spreading its Wagner group and its military might too thin. And that the longer the war in Ukraine is prolonged, the more they're going to face, whether it's economic challenges or military challenges. And maybe Russia is really just pushing itself too thin on the ground to be able to sustain its forces in Ukraine. But having said that, we haven't really seen a shift of movement in terms of Wagner or Russian soldiers to a very significant degree. 
if anything, we see the Russian military expanding and, and taking over more areas. And I would argue that this is partly because Russia is having to realign itself or redefine itself on the international stage vis-a-vis the Americans and the Europeans. So it certainly is looking for new allies and to take control and have a stronger position of power in other parts of the world. The, well, the Wagner, of course, component is very effective against non-state um, uh, non actors and uh, ultimately also uh, various state actors on a regional scale or even a local scale. But uh, we saw them also compete with the Americans in Syria, for instance, and that was a, a total disaster. Uh, so to what degree do you see that actually develop in a, uh, in a manner that would allow them to really assert influence? Is it not more about the weapon sales? Because Wagner is also employed, of course, in Ukraine, where they're pretty much being utilized as cannon fodder for this matter. I don't think you should underestimate the, the power of Wagner. I was in the Central African Republic a few weeks ago, and many of the viewers might not even know where this is, but it's a significant country in Africa in terms of its natural resources. Russia, through Wagner, have basically taken over the whole country to the extent that Russian is being introduced as the third language in that country. And what we see happening more and more is Russia, through its military and through Wagner, is coming to the assistance of countries. And, and here the Russians always make the point that they are invited to a country. So, for example, in Syria, it was the, the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad, who asked for Russian assistance. They always make that difference between themselves and the Americans and the Western powers, is that they are always responding to the request from the government. I, I think Wagner is hugely, um, and, and let's say through them, the, the military arm of Russia has a huge potential. I think the concern, though, is that it's spreading itself to thin, and that would be um, my my point of reference in terms of are they succeeding or not, rather than a question of whether or not the Wagner group is sufficient. It's you basically having a battle particularly in Africa, I can say, between governments who are employing private military companies to to fight for them. And here the Russians are playing a huge influential role. Indeed, very interesting indeed. Uh, Professor Hanin, your take on this? Uh, well, I would say that, uh, uh, like in the Soviet Union, which establishment uh, always fluctuated between two understandings of, understandings of geostrategic position of their country, that means between, between the understanding it as a fortress surrounded by the enemies from all sides. And to late Soviet times, like we remember, Dayton, uh, uh, peaceful coexistence and so on. Now these two concepts are actually uh, discussed and understood and tried uh, by the Russian government. Um, it is pretty clear that the uh, initial understanding of the situation, uh, that conflicts right uh, between Russia and uh, uh, Georgia, and of course Russia and Ukraine uh, will be regarded in the West as something which is uh, uh, an internal issue uh, of the uh, USSR successor states, and the West will might uh, uh, make some sanctions, uh, will be disappointed with this or that, will be not happy uh, with different steps, but at the end of the day, uh, uh, Russia and the West were partners. Now. It is pretty clear that uh, in Moscow and the Kremlin, uh, they under understand the situation completely differently. It's more close to this surrounded fortress, uh, meaning that uh, the war in Ukraine 
uh, after the Russian invasion is not something which is the conflict of uh, uh, in, between U.S. successor states and the territory, uh, which was understood uh, or at least agreed at a certain point under the Yeltsin times, uh, Gorbachev times, uh, that's something which is uh, on the ultimate or at least the predominant uh, sphere of interest of Moscow. Now it is there, they're trying or they're understanding uh, the current situation, defining as, uh, again, a struggle between uh, uh, Russia and the West, imperialist, neo-imperialist world, uh, on the territory of Ukraine. Uh, so from this point of view, we should understand the, uh, the their stand also in, uh, in the Middle East. Uh, they will, again, coming back, uh, uh, that mean, uh, departing from the understanding as it was uh, 10 years ago, even five years ago, that Russia here came back in the Middle East uh, in order with the pragmatic interests um, and ready to cooperate with everybody uh, to more or less uh, the situation when the, uh, those who with, with, with not with us, they're against us. Um, uh, it's not uh, concerns Israel uh, in the full, uh, full scale meantime, but as, as far as, or as much as the, uh, Moscow and uh, uh, Tehran uh, become uh, not just close allies, but also strategical partners, and also Moscow was ready to give to uh, Iranians, uh, give them outsourcing uh, for the places of um, uh, Russia interest and presence, uh, in some way even Syria, but in even more uh, places like, as I mentioned, uh, Southern Caucasus and Armenia, for instance, uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, they're pulling out their forces from there, uh, if we are talking about Middle East, it's also part of so-called uh, extended Middle East or big Middle right. East. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, they are uh, already uh, pulling out at the same uh, at the same time. They are interested to um, uh, preserve their influence on the leadership of these countries, and that is uh, brings, makes the situation a little bit confusing. For for example, a close ally of Iran and Russia, Armenia. Now they are looking and searching. Uh, re-established uh, their more close relations with the West, with the United States and with Israel, by the way. Uh, so uh, Russia is not happy about it. So at the moment, uh, uh, I, it's pretty difficult for me to define what they really want here in the Middle East. Of course, they're interested uh, in Moscow. They're interested to preserve their influence and to be, uh, again, uh, in good relations with everybody. Uh, Hamas and uh, Palestinian autonomy. Israel and Iran, um, uh, uh, Arab countries of the Gulf uh, that are now in Abrahamic Accord with Israel, and uh, countries like uh, Syria and Iraq, which uh, um, well, uh, should have uh, relations with Israel, I wish would be better. Uh, so, um, uh, unless uh, the situation in Ukraine will be resolved, um, uh, I don't believe uh, that uh, Russia will be able uh, to formulate like a clear-cut doctrine, and uh, even less will be able to reach any of the goals. Indeed. Uh, well, Mr. Owen, uh, you know, Professor Hanin mentioned uh, Israel is neither friend or foe in Russia's perspective. Uh, Ms. Lear noted that, you know, Israel is uh, uh, regarded as in between, balancing between the two uh, places, uh, West and, of course, Russia and the East. Uh, to what degree does Israel look at Russia and say, we are indeed there, we are neither friend nor foe, we're not, you know, uh, where, where is Israel from that? So Israel, of course, um, 
has a special interest in Russia in the Jewish community there. And there are, of course, um, hundreds of thousands, more than a million Russian-speaking Israelis. Of course, they are divided between Ukrainians and Russians uh, when it comes to how uh, they look uh, at the war. The fact that uh, they are of uh, uh, what is considered here by amateurs Russian extraction does not mean a lot because they may be in favor of uh, Ukraine and not Russia, but nevertheless, they have, may have family there in Russia. Israel uh, should consider them. Uh, Israel has tried, of course, uh, to do the least it uh, can be expected to do for Ukraine so that it does not get on uh, Putin's bedside. Is it true, though, today, considering the fact that the first trip by the incumbent foreign minister, Eli Cohen, of the incumbent government under Netanyahu, his first trip to Europe was to Ukraine. He met with uh, Kubela, the foreign minister there, his counterpart, and uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, he pledged to follow up on uh, the pledge of the previous government under Yair Lapid, the transitional government, and uh, uh, Defense Minister Benny Gantz uh, to provide Ukraine with early warning systems, something that uh, was, of course, at the time, a signal to the European Union that here we are standing wow. with the Ukrainians and with uh, your interests as well. Uh, to what degree is this not being uh, closely observed and even so, frowned upon by the Russians? Promises, promises. And um, uh, Eli Cohen, even though he has the grand title of uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, is not close to Netanyahu. It is well known that uh, Minister of Strategic Affairs Ron Dermer is the de facto foreign minister. Who is more focused on the United States, though. Yes, but, but um, uh, visits alone cannot uh, uh, supply Zelensky by what he needs to pursue uh, the war. Um, so, yes, Cohen was there. He left. It doesn't uh, uh, really matter. And what you call, what you refer to as early warning is very late now. Um, so a few months from now, after the uh, Ukrainians train in it, after they absorb it, maybe they will get it and maybe some of their uh, civilians uh, will be helped by it. That This is uh, very important. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, they need decisive weapons in order to win the war, Israel will not give them anything which kills Russians. Indeed. Well, this is all the time that we have for today. I'd like to thank Professor Hanin, Ms. Lear, and Mr. Owen for being part of today's panel. And I'd like to thank all of you at home as well. And until next time, Shalom. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.